Remembering is such a vital spiritual practice. God wants us to recall uh, the things he's done through the years in our lives. In fact, when we stop remembering, very often that's when we get ourselves in great trouble. When we stop just recounting all the ways in which God has acted time and time again on our behalf. This past week, I've been doing some remembering of uh, December 24th, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Village Church is opening today. They're having their celebration today. And I, as I think about them and all they're experiencing this morning, I mean, I remember like walking in and you all walking in and we're walking around like we're, like we're stealing someone else's building. It just didn't feel like we should even be here or belong and all that stuff. And just all the great stuff that happened those first few weeks as you just get comfortable with the new place. And I, I'm so excited for them as they get going on their journey and their place. And, and that was just a really important remembering for me. Maybe as this weekend goes on, you can remember a time in your life that, that God just showed up in incredible ways. Ways that, that you could never have dreamed or imagined. You went, wow, it is so good. It is so good to be a child of God. I, I was looking at the gospel reading for today, and, and then we're going to take communion by going to the stations around the room and, and listening to a song as we do. A song that I suspect will bring about some remembering for some people. Uh, as I was looking at the scripture reading today, it's found in Luke chapter 9, and it's about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I thought it would be interesting this morning to take this passage from a remembering perspective. What was it like for the disciples 20, 30 years after Jesus left the earth to retell this story to a group of people? To just begin with that, oh, you should have been there. It was the most incredible day. I mean, I remember how blue the sky was. And, and I remember just that crowd sitting there. And, 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 and they were hungry. And, and Jesus comes along and says, what do we have? Let's feed them with what we have. And the miracle that took place, and you're not going to believe this part, but in the end, there were actually leftovers. We were eating fish and bread for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was the best. So this morning as we read the passage, read it and hear it from a recalling standpoint. Not like you've heard it for the first time, but like you're telling it for the thousandth. And you're telling it for the thousandth time with the same energy and vitality as if it just happened two minutes ago. The Bible says, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those needing to be healed. It was late in the afternoon, and the disciples came to him and said, send the crowd away so we can go to the surrounding villages and, and countryside and find food or lodging because we're in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, well, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go buy food for all of this crowd. And then they report about 5,000 men were there besides women and children. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. 
So the disciples did so. And everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples who, to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. So in our time of silence, maybe you'll reflect on this event and just experience it again with fullness of joy or a remembering that you have of a time that God was active and powerful in your life. And after our silence, we'll go to our stations for communion.
We do give you thanks, God, for people who sacrifice. For some, it was the sacrifice of their life. For others, it was simply the sacrifice of several years. Time away from family. uh, Time away from their normal routine. Every one of these sacrifices, God, was huge. And they all remind us, again, of the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice you made. The sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And our hearts today, whether it's thinking about a soldier or thinking about you, are incredibly incredibly grateful. We're grateful that others are willing to sacrifice so deeply so that we can enjoy freedom, so that we can enjoy whether it's uh, freedom in a country or freedom in Christ. We thank you so very much in Jesus' name. Amen. So since Easter, we've been talking about idols. An idol is anything at all that draws our heart away from God, that competes for our full attention, devotion, and worship to God. We've defined an idol as anything that calls my heart away from God as an idol. Anything that competes for my allegiance to God is a form of idolatry. An idol is much more than a little statue or an icon. You know, as humans, we're primarily worshipers. We're, we're designed to worship. That's the way God made us. And our worship, that, that tendency in us, it needs an object. Now, God wired us to be the object of our worship, but we're prone to wander. And so we end up finding other things to worship. If you want to understand idolatry and the way the human heart works, it would help to do an extended study of the people of Israel. To just start in Exodus and go through Deuteronomy and even a little bit further and and take a look at them and the way they work and live. Uh, Israel in the Bible is a real nation. We know that. And the events are real. The people are real. I do not doubt or question the historical accuracy or the reality of these people and events. In fact, it's funny, time after time there have been scholars who you know, mock the Bible because a particular uh, people group has not been discovered or something that's mentioned in the Bible, they can't find evidence of it. Only to have an archaeological dig and there's exactly what the Bible said was there all along and they end up with egg on their faces as archaeology unearths proof of, of the existence of what was already said in the Word of God. The people of Israel are true and they're real. So I don't mean to undermine that reality with what I'm about to say. Israel serves as an incredible analogy for the ways and wanderings of the human heart. They serve at times as a metaphor of the way the spiritual life works, and honestly, the way it doesn't work sometimes. It's almost as if when we're reading their story, we find ourselves in their story. If we're brave, And if we're honest, we look at Israel and we see ourselves. And, and, you know, we don't hopefully merely give them kind of a a tisk tisk and a wave of the finger as we look at the way that they do it wrong, the areas that, that they don't quite get it right. No, instead we read and we say, I do that. That's the way I live. Those are the things I do. Those are the mistakes I make. We find ourselves hopefully having a deep sense of mercy and compassion on them because when we see them, we see us. Now, one of the books of the Bible that shows us the ways and wanderings of the human heart is the book of Judges. 
This book represents a season in Israel's history between the death of Joshua up to the naming of the first king, Saul. There are 15 judges listed in the Old Testament, starting with Othniel and ending with Samuel. Other prominent judges include Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Eli. It was God's intention that Israel be a true theocracy. God was their king. Judges were not kings. In a sense, they were not even rulers. They all oversaw the ways and will of God with the people. It's not easy to put an exact length of time on the, on the history of the judges, but, but we believe it lasted a little over 300 years. The English word judge uh, may mislead us a bit in terms of the nature of this role. The Hebrew word for judge is sophitim. This word would better be translated deliverer or savior. They serve both as deliverers from the hands of an enemy as well as a catalyst or stimuli for godly living. I found this graphic online. I love it. In fact, what I'd encourage you to do, for some of you, you're artistic. You're really into artistic stuff. There's kind of this uh, new way of doing Bible journaling that's been pretty neat. Instead of simply writing your notes and that sort of thing, to actually take a Bible passage and draw about it. If you've got some drawing ability, you might actually find yourself doodling out some things as you're, as you're kind of enjoying your artistic expression and understanding better what God is saying to you. If King David, that shepherd and poet, were alive today, he'd be all over this. I mean, we'd have all kinds of doodles from the Psalms if, if he were around. Let me read what this says. You might be having kind of a hard time reading it. It talks about the season of the Judges found in Judges chapter 2. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. I'm going to keep reading, even though this isn't on the chart. The Bible goes on to say, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods, little g gods, idols, and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commands of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers had done. These verses lay out what is commonly referred to as as the judges cycle. Now for those of you that wonder when you're teaching kids if anything ever sinks in, let me tell you. Seventh grade, Mrs. Creason Sunday school class, all right? I remember sitting in the basement of First Baptist Church in North Tonawanda, clear as day. The sunlight is streaming in the stained glass windows, and she's explaining to us the judges' cycle. Let me show you this graphic. This was not hers. This is a more modern one. She had, like, flannel graph, which was pretty cool. But anyway, so what goes on in the judges' cycle? It basically works like this. 
Israel's doing pretty well. They're serving the Lord. They're walking in a right way. And then they start to fall into sin. And it says adultery, not literally physical adultery, but playing the harlot. In other words, they're, they're following after false God. They're committing adultery against God. And what God does then is allow, is allow allows Israel to be enslaved by one of the nations that still inhabits Israel. So sometimes it's the Midianites, sometimes it's the Philistines, but someone comes and causes them great trouble. Because of the trouble that they're going through, they cry out to the Lord. Does this sound at all familiar, by the way? Uh, does it sound a little bit like human life, right? We fall away from God. We, we go through a time of distress. We cry out, God, help me. And what would happen then is God would raise up one of these judges. A judge would come along. He'd help deliver the people. They were delivered, and they're celebrating, and they say, that's it. We're serving the Lord forever, until that judge would die. And then... It would happen all over again. We'd have yet another cycle that this would work through. In the Old Testament, there are, there are 15 judges listed. 13 are, are listed in the book of Judges, and then Samuel and Eli are mentioned in the book of Samuel prior to the coming of King Saul. There are 15 judges listed, but there are six major judges cycles that take place within the book. So what I want to do this morning is just look at the first couple of chapters of the book of Judges. Because like I said, as you're looking at it, you really see the tendency of the human heart and how the human heart works when it comes to uh, the issue of idolatry. So I'm going to be reading this morning from the New International Version. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up. I'm using the New International Version for, for deeply theological reasons. This Bible has big print, so I can see it, and that's very helpful. Um, The book begins by saying, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answers, Judah's going to go ahead. I've given the land into their hands. So we see that Joshua is dead. He's gone. In fact, at the end of the book of Joshua, he dies. We bury him at 110 years old. Judges starts out by saying, he's gone. It's over. And then they start going on without this leader. So they've had Moses and they had Joshua. And now they have nobody. And they're just heading on in to go ahead and continue the job of clearing the land. And the first several verses of the chapter, one person after another, whether it's Caleb or whoever, they're going in and they're clearing the land. And they're doing a great job of clearing the land. And then we come to verse 27. And verse 27 is where we start to see the propensity of the human heart. It says, but Manasseh, and remember Manasseh is not an individual. This is one of the tribes. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or or Ibleam or Megiddo and the surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. So we have this group of people who they basically say, we're not leaving, and the Israelites fight against them, and they finally give up and say, all right, you can have your land. And what we see then, as you go through this first chapter, is that group after group after group does the same thing. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites living in their area. Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites living in their area. Asher did not drive out the Canaanites living in their area. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on, naming Naphtali did not drive out the, the people living in their area. The Amorites were left alone. Time and time again, we have this tendency now. God said, go in, clear the land of its inhabitants, and the people go, it's too hard. I can't do it. Ew, this won't be so bad. So what if we just let them continue to live here? We can coexist. All will be okay. This is a huge propensity of the human heart. We always leave a little junk. We go three quarters, we go nine tenths, and we go, eh, 
We'll just leave the rest. It'll be okay. It won't be a big problem. We come to chapter 2, and and chapter 2 begins with the angel of the Lord speaking. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Uh, Not only are you supposed to drive them out, you're to break down the the, the altars to which they worship. Yet you have disobeyed me. They didn't do it. They didn't drive down the people, out the people, and they did not break down the altars. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become like snares to you. So I love this because basically what God says, I wanted you to drive them out. You didn't drive them out. I'm not doing it for you. This is your job. You've determined to leave this little piece there. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to clean up your mess. And what you're going to find in the years to come is that these people are going to hassle you and their gods are going to snare you. They're going to entrap you. Then the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites. When the, when the angel had spoken this to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud and they called the place Bochim. There, and there, there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So their heart is still soft enough at this point that when God says, here's your punishment, they cry. Eventually, they don't even do that anymore. They just go, oh, well, I guess we'll just live with it. But at this point, there's still this softness. Now, now this is where the book gets a little strange. If you're reading along and you're kind of only half reading, you kind of go, wait, what? Um, because verse 6 says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites... They went, to the, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and, and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. And you're kind of going, wait, Joshua's dead. Why are we talking about Joshua? Is this a different Joshua? What's going on here? We had Joshua buried at the end of Joshua. We have Joshua's obituary at the beginning of Judges. And now here in chapter 2, verse 6, Joshua's appearing once again. In fact, in verse 8, guess what? Joshua dies again. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance. Interesting thing about the book of Judges. This is a, it's stylistic on the part of the author. This book has two introductions and two conclusions. It's kind of an interesting parallelism going on here. But if you're reading along, you're kind of confused because you're like, wait a second, he's gone, but now he's back, but now he's gone. What's going on? You have two introductions going on in the book, side by side. And the bottom line of it is what this part says is, while Joshua is alive, these people lived for God. But as soon as Joshua was gone, they started doing whatever they wanted. What a great legacy on the part of Joshua. And at the same time, how sad that once he was gone, everything fell apart. Verse 10. This is a great Memorial Day verse. Not just for our country, but for us as a church. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, or in other words, after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They, they had no spiritual memory. No spiritual memory 
of having been in the wilderness. No spiritual memory of all the things that had taken place. They were just inhabitants of the land, enjoying the place that they were living. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They served the false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. In, their, in his anger against in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders. Now, this is going to sound kind of familiar. In his anger against, against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. I kind of laugh at that verse, because I can't think of a time that Israel was totally obedient they're always doing so in other words this generation is way worse than the people that are out there building golden calves and everything else they're just really really sliding big print doesn't help when you're lost it says but when the judge died the people returned to their ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following others gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So we have then this cycle that takes place, at least six times written about in the book of Judges, where time and time again, the people are unwilling to do what God says. The book goes on, the Bible goes on to say, therefore the Lord was angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenants I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel to see whether they will keep the ways of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So this is kind of that, we see that verse in the Bible, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God actually now says, I'm going to use those nations that remain, those people that remain in the land, in order to continue to test the hearts of the people. In fact, if you read on into chapter 3, it actually says that God allowed those people to remain, rather than taking them away, to help this new generation learn how to do battle and learn how to do warfare. But in this chapter, we see, we see so clearly how the human heart works, that time and time again, we'll go through this literal cycle of living with God, things are going well, we're following, we're doing the right thing, we start to slide, we fall, we find ourselves in captivity, we cry out, God sends a way of delivering, we go, oh my goodness, thank you God for your deliverance, I'll never turn from you again, until the next time I'm ready to turn from you again. Why? Why would we take the time to look at the book of Judges today? What's this all about? You know, as you walk into our church, you see a verse on the wall. And we put there quite there quite intentionally. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. How, how do you get past? How do you get over? How do you get through this idolatry thing? It's about wholeheartedness. The Israelites were not wholehearted. The Israelites left people in the land. The Israelites left altars in place. The Israelites said, three quarters is good enough. 
The Israelites said, who else does nine-tenths? We're almost all the way there. That'll do. And God says, I'm looking for people who are wholehearted. If you're wholehearted, you will find me. In fact, the verse goes on to say, I will be found by you, says the Lord. This part's not on our wall. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. When we exhibit that wholeheartedness in the fight against the idols of our hearts, God brings us back to our homeland. He brings us back into that relationship with him. So why talk about judges today? Well, we're wrapping up this series, and we're in, in the wrap-up, we're not introducing another idol, but what we're doing is thinking through ways to smash the idols we've already identified. We've highlighted some major idols of our modern times, and these are broad examples, and hopefully what they've done is actually unearth some other idols in your own life. Like I said at the beginning, Israel is both historical for us and metaphorical for us. We see in the spiritual life of this nation our spiritual lives, the way our spiritual lives work. We can unearth the workings of the heart by retracing the wandering heart of the nation. So what we really come down today is this question, how do we smash our idols? You've identified your idol. You know it's there. How do we smash our idols? So let me walk you through some action steps to take in all involved in smashing the idols of our hearts. And the first step does involve identification. And identification is really two-pronged. It has, it has two distinct aspects. What do we have to identify? Well, first of all, we have to identify ourselves. We have to identify ourselves as worshipers. Hopefully that's starting to make sense to you. Every one of us are wired to be worshipers. We're made that way. God wired us to worship. And worship is rooted in desire. A desire to connect, a desire to be part of something bigger, something more meaningful than just ourselves and our existence. We are worshipers. God made us that way. And he created us with a void, an emptiness, a longing, and a desire that can only be completely and legitimately fulfilled by him. Call it a hunger, a thirst, You're wired to want. That's the way we're made. And specifically, you're wired to want God. We read in the Bible, you have formed us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Did I say we read that in the Bible? We heard that in a sermon. That's Augustine. He was not in the Bible. But anyway, we're wired to want, specifically to want God. But we're pretty good at filling the emptiness. We stuff stuff into our emptiness. We hear it thrown around kiddingly, but, but it really is a deadly serious phrase. The first step is admitting you have a problem. We have to admit we have a problem. What's the problem? We have a problem that is rooted in our identity as worshipers, and that is this. Our hearts are prone to wander. We stuff stuff into our emptiness. The stuff we stuff into that emptiness apart from God is called idolatry. By now, I hope you've identified yourself as a worshiper and at the same time, a worshiper with a wandering heart, with the potential to be an idol worshiper. We return to that phrase by John Calvin again that says, every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. 
So we need to identify ourselves as worshipers, as people who desire. And sadly, our longings are not always met in God. They can be, but we choose to go to other places. We settle for replacement gods. We settle for idols. Here's the other prong of the identity issue. We need to identify ourselves as worshipers, wandering worshipers, and we need to identify our desires. So what is it that your heart really longs for? It's one thing to know that you're wired to want. It's another thing to know what you want. Have you ever had that happen? It's dinner time and you're kind of going, what do I want? What do I want? I know I, know I want, what do I want? It makes me crazy. And, and when you eat what you're going to eat, you go, yeah, that wasn't it. Ah, uh, uh. What is it that I want? What's my desire? It's one thing to know we're wired to want. It's another thing to know what we want. While some wantings are, are fairly universal, everybody has certain wandering, wantings, others are unique, or let's put it this way at least. Uh, they're all universally present, but some are stronger in some people than others. So let me give you an example from our family. In our family, Kim, Brian, and Nate are wired to be pretty competitive, especially Brian. Brian can turn anything to a contest if there's a chance he can be declared a winner. I mean, he just he's wired competitively. Dennis and Shelly are pretty non-competitive. We're just, you know, we're, we're a little bit more peace-loving and all. This is not to say we don't like to win. It's not to say we don't hate to lose. But it's not life and death to us. It's kind of an, oh, well, whatever. Brian and Dennis have differing levels of desire when it comes to winning. And that is important for both of us to know. For Brian, it is quite possible that an idol or two in his life will be rooted in the issue of competition. That's a desire for him. For me, I can pretty much say there are probably no idols there. I, 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 competition is not my desire. So is this making sense? You start rooting out your desires, and as you're rooting out your desires, you start to identify the places your heart will tend to wander. So what are some of the potential desires of the human heart? Let me just go through about 15. Intimacy, connection, possession, power, control, serenity, happiness, security, safety, knowing. I just have to know. Thrills, laughs, expression, the ability to express ourselves, recognition, praise, validation, acceptance, healing, wholeness. All of these are legitimate desires of the human heart. And all of these desires can drive us down the path to an illegitimate God. Or all of these desires can be met in the only God that can make a difference. We could go on and on with these idols, with these desires. Here's the bottom line. Smashing our idols starts with identification. I am a worshiper with a wandering heart. We need to know that about ourselves. And I want fill in the blank you got to know your desire. This is my deep desire. This is the thing I want. Now, this action item, we'll move on to the next one, and it's an extension of identification. The next action is to simply name it. Name your idol. you got to name it. This is my idol. These are my idols. We, we've not been willing to call it that. Eh, this is one of my habits, you know. It, it, I got this little tendency over here. Sometimes I blah, blah, blah. No, it's an idol. Pure, simple. It's a false God that we're worshiping. It's, a, it's an area that we're turning to something other than God to find satisfaction for our desire. So we've got to name it for what it is. It is my idol. These are my idols. 
Clearly, you cannot know what you're going to smash if you don't have a target. You've got to know the idol that needs to be broken. You need to name it. You need to name it to yourself. This is my idol. You need to name it to God. God, this is the idol that I worship sometimes instead of you. You might also find it helpful to name it to someone safe. Another human being in your life that you can say, um, you know, someone that's got some spiritual maturity who will walk you through the smashing process. Someone who's not going to soften the blow. Oh, honey, don't worry about that. I do that too. But someone who's going to call the idol an idol and say, here's a bat. Let's go at it. Naming it shifts to the third action. And the third action is that simple word, repentance. It's time to cry out to God for help for forgiveness, for restoration, for power over the false God. It's not enough to say, yep, that's me. It's time to really talk to God about it. Repentance is radical. It's radical. It's a 180 degree turn. I was going this way. I am not anymore. Now I'm going this way. Repentance is rooted in the Greek word metanoia. There are two words there. The prefix meta means change, and noia is the, is the word for your mind. You're going to change your mind. You're changing your thinking. So what does repentance involve? Well, repentance involves an apology. I come and apologize to God. God, I've displaced you. It involves amends, restitution, correction, making things right. Sometimes the area that I've been worshiping has caused problems for other people. It's time to make things right. And it involves resolve. I'm done. I'm not going there again. I am smashing that altar completely. I'm throwing away the rocks. I'm not holding on to anything. It's done. It's over. I'm through. And that leads to the final action. That is ruthless detachment. Did you get that? Ruthless detachment. What do we learn from Israel? They never mastered the fine art of ruthless detachment. They always took their idol and said, well, we'll just save that for later. Who knows? Might need that. You know, they, they never just say, no, it's done. It's over. I'm through. We need ruthless detachment. Ruthless detachment could be easily worded another way. Wholehearted. I'm going to be wholehearted in this. It's not a halfway deal. It's not a glib, well, I'll try harder. Sin is way too much like a weed. Pull it by the head and the root's still in there. The weed will be back in a week. It never went away. The window dressing of it did, but the root weed is still there. If the idol is to lose its grip, it must be destroyed. This is wholehearted, all in, no half efforts. And to be perfectly honest, it's where we way too easily fall. We do three quarters, we do nine tenths, we do not do 100%. This kind of idol smashing may mean you're going to change some life habits, places you go, people you're with, items you purchase. It may mean uncomfortable levels of accountability, the type that reminds you from time to time where you've been and you don't want to go there again. Smashing them means just that, smashing them. And by smashing, we don't mean saving some pieces that can be glued back together at a later date. My belief this is best done with some guidance a spiritual companion for the journey. This is where I think AA gets it so right and the church so often misses the target. In AA, we admit, I have a problem and I need community to help me out. In the church, we admit we have a problem to ourselves and hope we can hide it from the community to avoid the repercussions. We need help smashing our idols. We cannot do it on our own. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. 
I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again to your land. You know, last week we used this verse as an example, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. I used it as an example of, go ahead to the next verse there, Sherry. I use this as an example of talking about the fact that we are a spirit. And when I was looking at the verse and putting it on the slide and putting it into the script and reviewing it, this verse was just, it was incredibly convicting to me. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Not just holy in the areas you hope to change. Holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Not better than the bums around you. Blameless. Until the, our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. That verse has just been with me all week. I, I've literally walked around and just thought, in what areas are my spirit, soul, and body less than blameless? Where am I less than holy? Because I want to be holy in every way. And so I thought to end this series, this would be a good place to uh, to just end with this as a prayer, a prayer that I pray for you and I pray for me. So as we pray it, I'd like you to go ahead and stand up. I'd like to pray it over you as we think about wholeheartedly going after the idols in our lives. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Keep working with us, God. Keep working on us. Don't give up. Stir the desires of our hearts toward you. I pray that from this group of people we would see rise up people who live up to the word wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you have a seat? Our servers are going to come and receive the offering. As they do, Brian's going to come on up too. How you doing, Brian? Great. Good. Um, talk to us a little bit about Greenlight. Do you have any details? How's your shaving cream collection going? It's st- we, again, we got a great start with the shaving cream. I think we have about 25 cans, but we still need like 175 more. So if you brought it today, you can bring it in uh, to the back door and or to the back door in this room, and uh, and we'll keep that going. If you haven't purchased any, that's fine. You, uh, we're taking it up until June 8th, I believe. It yeah, is. Do you have a favorite flavor? You know, I, again, the, the, just the plain barbasol does taste foamy, great. Foamy and cheap. Yeah, foamy okay, and good. cheap. Yeah, foamy we don't need cheap. anything extravagant or anything like that. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking, and he's, he's talking about, you know, the, the group that was signed up. And he said, this is going to be a weird year. It's kind of small. We have 17 kids signed up and, and don't, didn't really know what to do about that. And then I talked to him again. I said, how's sign-up going? He said, a little better. So where are you today? 54. We have 54 students, which is, yeah. That's more people than we brought total last year. Uh, and again, I, I know that there are going to be a few more registrations even coming in today because I've had conversations. So those kids aren't even included in the count. 
Um, so so let gonna... me ask you this. When is your end of the world, hard, hard deadline? You show them I will take pass. I mean, this yeah. is it. Uh, I need, I really need registrations today. I, I need to turn in uh, because, again, we've blown through where we were going to stay. Uh, they didn't have, they don't have enough space uh, for where we for where they had us planned to stay. So now in trying to find a new spot, uh, they really need a hard number. So I need registration today. If uh, you didn't bring a check along, that's fine. I just need to know absolutely hard, you know, like lock it down by midnight tonight um, if you're going or not, or if your student's going or not. Because again, it's going to be a really great trip, but we want to make sure that uh, they have a place to sleep. Good deal. Some other stuff going on this week that uh, you, you'll want to know about, or maybe you don't want to know about, but it's kind of cool. So this week our shed arrives, yay. All the stuff that's been stored all over the universe can finally make its way to the shed. We're very happy about that. I know, you're like, you, you just can't hold yourself in your seat. It's just so <laughs> mind-blowing and wonderful. On Friday, we're going to finish the other side of the sign. You know, you have all those beautiful rocks on the front side of the sign. On Friday, we're going to be doing the back side. So if you're strong and have nothing to do, or if you just like to stand and tell other people what to do, come on out and, and we can employ you and get those rocks in place. So that's on Friday, and we could, we could use your help with that. Uh, the, only, the only other thing today that I thought would be really, really great, if you know someone that goes to Village Church, would you just kind of email them, text them, contact them today and say, we're so celebrating for you and celebrating with you. We are the body of Christ. And by that, we don't mean so few. We are the body of Christ, the people who are followers of Jesus. And so we want to make sure that they know we are just absolutely thrilled for them today as they start out on their journey together. Why don't you stand? We've already prayed. So say hi to somebody. Be nice. It is church. And you enjoy your Memorial Day weekend.